Hi everyone and welcome to our live podcast series. My name is Elise Dennis Ramirez and I'm a feminist researcher at the Open University and also a member of the RSSH group. We hope you enjoyed this podcast today and please remember to subscribe. Today's talk is focused on the topic of reproductive justice and creating a new reality through feminist knowledge creation and participation. Reproductive justice is really combining reproductive rights and social justice. And it's a movement founded by Black feminists and women of color in the US in the 90s. Reproductive justice is centered around human rights and focused on the conditions that really shape our reproductive choices and what reproductive care that's available. Um, but as much as our reproductive justice is a movement, it's also a framework and a methodology that can really help us to unpack and learn and understand reproductive injustice. So through reproductive justice and injustice, we're really trying to imagine a push for a different, a more just society. And with us here today, we have an absolutely brilliant panel of uh, three speakers that are all driving the reproductive justice conversation across academia, feminist groups, and activist spaces. They're here with us to talk about what reproductive justice means, what knowledge creation and participation means, the challenges and successes they have faced in their work, and also their commitments for the future. So therefore, I'm really excited to welcome Eden, Camila, and Patricia. Hello, everyone. I'm Patricia McGuire, and it's just really a joy to be here with everyone today. I currently host uh, the podcast Participatory Action Research, Feminist Trailblazers and Good Troublemakers. And what we try to do is elevate the um, contributions of early feminists to participatory action research which situated itself as a uh, potentially transformative approach to knowledge creation. Uh, it's a bookend to work that I started 40 years ago, um, working in a participatory research project with former, what we called then battered women. Now we talk about gender-based violence. Um, and so it's a bookend to that project for 40 years. I've been an advocate for participate for feminist informed participatory action research and I currently work with a, a small activist group in my community called Good Troublemakers St. John's and uh, we work on very local issues trying to um, harness resources um, for locally identified issues so it's a joy to be and some of which are, are health related um, which loops back to reproductive justice. Hey everybody, my name is Camilla. I'm uh, dialing in from Ireland, little island off the coast of uh, Europe. Uh, it's great to see we've got such a wide kind of international audience. I can see people in the chat, uh, people from around different parts of the world. So I guess the best way to think about me is, is I, I mean, my page job is that I'm an academic. I'm an associate professor in Maynooth University in Ireland. But long before I was ever an academic, I've been a left-wing activist, I've been involved in uh, left-wing politics, outside of parliamentary politics. So I think, Patricia, it was you that recently talked about being a street feminist. Well, I guess I've been one of them for over 30 years at this stage. Um, but even as I say that, I, I, I always hesitate before using the word feminism or feminist because I'm definitely a feminist. But I'm also um, research and write about many of the harms that have been done under the guise of feminism, particularly to working class, racialized migrant uh, women. So feminisms is what I often talk about. And I guess the best way to describe myself is an intersectional radical feminist, I think. But even the word intersection is now very problematic because of the way it's been completely co-opted. So you probably know me best from my book Repealed, which uh, researched about um, the um, referendum in Ireland to introduce abortion. And it was really because of my connection with street politics that I was able to research and write that book because I was surrounded by activists for so many years that I was in the thick of it. And really the purpose of my work has been to reclaim 
the introduction of abortion to Ireland for activists because it didn't come through Parliament. It became because of pressure from thousands of people, which forced the hand of the government to change. So that's me. We can talk more later. Hi, everyone. I am Edom Barbara and Timmy. I'm co-director of Reproductive Justice Initiative, which was formerly called Decolonizing Contraception. Um, I've been um, formally involved with the organization since about 2020. We recently became a charity organization. Um, and um, the reason why we did that, and then we also had a name change, is that we thought a lot of the work we were doing falls under you know, the reproductive justice framework. And we wanted our name to reflect but also give us an opportunity to do work around other injustices that other communities, other marginalized groups um, might be facing. A little bit about me, um, I've been um, an activist involved in social movements for over a decade now. Um, I got involved in sexual health um, 10 years ago when I lived in Sheffield in the UK. So I'm joining you from Birmingham today. I lived in Sheffield in the, um, in the UK and um, I, there was a there was a peer mentoring and sexual health project. I was like, oh, that looks good. I was like, all my friends keep asking me. Like, I used to be that person in my friend group that would like, I mean, the professional term is chaperoning, but I used to do that before I even knew what that was. I'd go to clinic with my friends to get morning after pill. I'd be there to support them, you know, support friends that had gone on to have terminations. It's just something that I did. So when I saw that project, I was like, okay, I'd, I'd really love to get involved. So um, the rest, as they say, is history. And I'm sat here today in front of you. So done lots of stuff around feminist movement, anti-racism in the UK, was heavily involved in the National Union of Students for, for a really long time, was in the executive committee, um, done stuff on abortion rights, yeah, just a whole lot. And I'm just very excited to be on this panel with um, yourselves, Patricia and Camilla and Elise, um, to talk about reproductive justice, yes. If I could add on, one of the things I didn't say is that I'm coming to you from Northern Florida, and of course, if you're paying any attention to what's happening with white supremacy and um, anti-reproductive justice in the US, Florida is the hotbed of um, anti-trans, anti-reproductive justice, white supremacy. Um, it's a place that we're trying to do a lot of work and we have a lot of work to do. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. And it's such a good panel from so many different settings, so many different experiences. Good to have you. So I think to kick us off, Idem, um, you already spoke a little bit about the reproductive framework. Um, so I think it's important that we start with learning a little bit more about our understanding of reproductive justice. What does that mean? What what does the framework look like? Um, Idem, I don't know if you want to start and then we yeah. can with Camilla and sure. So um, reproductive justice as a framework really is looking to go beyond the traditional reproductive rights framework that is primarily focused on, you know, legal access to abortion, contraception, sexual health, you know, sort of like the World Health, the UN, sort of those definitions and terms that have been put in place is looking to go beyond that. Um, and it was coined by a group of black women who had been to a conference, it's an international population conference in Cairo in the 90s, and they came back to the US and they were very frustrated that, you know, the movement was still talking about choice, you know, was still talking about legality and wasn't looking at the ways in which the different situations people live in affect their ability to actualize their rights or even to access reproductive services. So, you know, reproductive um, justice acknowledges the reproductive health is influenced by a range of factors, including race, class, gender, sexuality, disability. And what it's trying to do is, is seeking to address systemic inequalities that create barriers to prevent people from being able to access reproductive health care and also ultimately from being able to make decisions about their own body. So, you know, the, the definition of reproductive justice is the right to have children, the right not to have children and the right to parent those children in safe and healthy communities. And for me, just very quickly, I see racism you know, that we know globally to exist to be a reproductive justice issue, right? Because it affects people's right to have children, affects the right, it affects the ability not to have children and how to parent those children in safe communities. So, you know, we can draw example from like 
the BLM movement and the fact that, you know, black people were being killed and executed on the street. That's a reproductive justice issue. Um, so I'll stop there so other people can come in. No, thanks, Edom. I mean, it's just, you've, you've said it all. Yeah, I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> not at all. No, I think what I can do is try and, you know, layer it maybe with, with my own context. I mean, I think your description is certainly how I would understand reproductive justice as well, based around the, the three rights that you outlined. But I think for me, one of the most important things is to always emphasize how it's very political. I mean, I mentioned left-wing politics earlier. I mean, when Louisa Ross and others wrote about this, um, you know, later than its initial inception, but in the early 2000s, they were very clear to say that being in fate, you know, working from a reproductive justice frameworks is an anti-capitalist perspective. I mean, they made that very clear that you did reproductive rights within capitalism. It, it's not compatible. So I think if I was to give an example, the biggest threat to people's reproductive rights in Ireland at the moment is probably a really acute housing crisis that we have. We have, you know, we're a very small country with a small population. So figures might sound a lot in bigger countries, but for Ireland to have over 10,000 people living in emergency accommodation, over 4,000 children living in emergency accommodation, these are the things that mostly impact reproductive justice at the moment. So this vision of the white middle-class woman sitting with their doctor and tossing over this decision of choice, as Eden puts it, it's just not the reality. That's not what reproduct our reproductive identity and lives are about. You know, it's about you know understanding that the person that finds himself pregnant living in a hotel room with three children already, with no sign of a house in the future, with uh, without a decent income, the how. How, look at how their choices are compromised and that's you know that's that's just one example um, and just also to say I mean I think again in an Irish context um, and certainly within socialist politics the first thing that was ever written I think in an Irish context was in 1978 a woman called Greta Horgan who people may have heard of wrote the first um, pamphlet on a women's right to choose and the very last page of that pamphlet was the conditions that need to be required to have children so I think that's, um, you know, really, uh, you know, it's such a key thing that we should never forget. Ireland's own history is quite similar to a lot of what happened in the United States around incarceration of women. So there were probably around 100,000 women incarcerated in the 20th century and their, their children were trafficked um, mainly to the UK, uh, some to uh, rich Irish families and also, or mainly to the US, some to rich Irish families and some to rich British families, but Ireland has a very dark history of reproductive injustices, unfortunately. I think an, another thing that I could mention is the overlap, if you will, in the values and the processes of reproductive justice and feminist-informed participatory research or feminist-informed research, that one of the issues, I believe, that the um, 12 Black American women who conceptualized and put together the concept of reproductive justice really goes back to you know who who has a voice in a community in determining what kind of services there are what services they need what the um, nuanced context of their lives is that drives access to or barriers to all, all kinds of reproductive choices. So there are a lot of, I think, overlaps between knowledge creation and reproductive justice from feminist perspectives. And I say that feminist with an S. Um, who benefits? Who Whose issues are addressed? Who has a voice in saying, you know, what services do they need? Uh, what are the barriers to getting those? And I'm sure the reproductive justice ish initiative, that's probably a lot of the work that you're really doing is, you know, a deep dive into the communities of color that you serve so that they have voices in determining services, naming problems. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Go on, Edom. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to come in and say, yeah, 100%. So, you know, we we say how how has like colonialism played a role in distorting knowledge and restructuring society the way that we see it? Who, how do we dissenter 
those things and instead focus on communities, what their needs, what their wants are, and even developing services or campaigning around issues or creating knowledge, right? Because there's a lot of community knowledge, right? It's not in the textbooks and it's not in the universities. There's a lot of community college. How do we center those things in order to kind of reimagine or produce a world in which everybody's able to like, you know, to live really, yeah. And I think that you put it so nicely, like you're setting me up, Edem, to the next thing I really want to speak to you about, like the community voice. And I really want to hear with you because you have such a range of experiences. So some of the work you have done on creating knowledge and really addressing reproductive justice, maybe you can speak to a few different like practical examples of feminist yeah. research and, and also what inspired you, if other people's work have inspired yeah, you. Absolutely. Um, just off the top of my head, I think one of the examples of work that we've done that I'd like to highlight is um, a piece of like research that we did. So, so research, not so strictly in the academic terms, but more of the community terms. So we did, we produced a booklet which talked about the abortion experiences of African, Asian and Caribbean women in England and Wales. And I think it's, it's important to be specific because, you know, people see the UK as one big entity, but where you live determines a lot of things and a lot of your life, you know, and, and your ability to access things and what your experience is like. So we did that particular research. I think we spoke to about 15 people who, who will identify as, as, as women or people who have gone in to be pregnant and then had a termination. And we discussed lots of things. We talked about people's medical experience, but we talked a little about, you know, society, culture, religion. And then we talked about the ways in which, you know, because some of the some of the work that has been done, you know, like diversity and inclusion, you know, kind of the the theory and like kind of the narrative behind that is that, you know, if we just if we just put people in places that look like other marginalized people, that kind of resolves the issue. But it doesn't really, because one of the questions we asked in this piece of research was that was having somebody who was from your ethnic background involving your abortion experience, did it improve? Like, how did you feel about it and what that helped? And a, pe a lot of people didn't have positive experiences. You know, some, some people felt that, you know, um, like healthcare professionals overstepped their boundaries in terms of providing care, in terms of like some of the ways they said things, some of the ways in which they looked at people, you know, so all of those things um, inform people's experience. And I think it's really important for us to record that. So we, we did that, we did this booklet and this booklet has like lots of different illustrations, it's a booklet that is free to download online that you can pass around, that you can share. And that was really important for us, not to do a research that goes in some sort of academic journal or paper, but to do a research and, 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 and to produce work that can be shared among people and around communities. And that also really informed um, another thing that we did, which is the sex agenda zine, it's a zine. So we have people from all over the world, people of color write about the ex their experiences, you know, people talking about period shame, people talking about sexuality, people talking about like religion, you know, all sorts of things. Again, for us, it's important to produce those things because those things help people who are struggling with some of those issues in our community to be like, oh, somebody has worked through this. It's okay to do this. It's okay to feel this way. I think that that's incredibly important. I might pick up on something Aidan said, just I think it's such an important point about, um, you know, the, the, the performativity and the pretense and really that idea that having somebody, you know, who looks and looks like you is going to is going to be enough. You know, it all comes back to the structural piece. It's so important. I mean, because I just feel, you know, obliged to remind us all that Thatcher was a woman and some people actually call her a feminist. Um, and I think just to look at, you know, this. There's kind of a big trend in feminism, and I know I'm slightly moving off the point here, but there's a big trend in feminism at the moment to vote for women. It's quite a big thing in Ireland, these vote for women campaigns. And if we can just feminize government, the things will be will be better in some way, you know. And I just think it's really important that we look at what happened initially, that we look at Georgia Maloney, who is a is a far right um politician who used her the fact that she was a woman to gain the power that she has. So she, you know, a lot of her campaign was I'm a mother, I can, I'm, I'm a family person, this sort of stuff. So I don't know if people have come across Sarah Farris. So she talks about this femonationalism is what she calls it. And this way that the far right in particular are weaponizing feminism and are using these cracks that feminism can create 
to push forward a very different agenda. I mean, in our universities, we have these equality, diversity and inclusion departments. And, you know, they're they're not worth the the sign that's on their door, you know, and really they 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 do, you know, someone again, I don't want to be dropping loads of names, but, you know, Sarah Ahmed and others have looked at, you know, the real harms that, that EDI uh, departments can do and that kind of pretense of intersectionality. You know, it's really it's it's bad for reproductive justice, and it's something that we should really uh, call out, just like Eden did, as much as we can. We would love to hear about some of your experiences, communities. Yeah, I'll just be really quick. I mean, one thing I just to, to talk about, which is maybe the 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 the, the bad news story, it was um, research that I was involved in with migrant women in Ireland, Muslim migrant women who uh, got in touch and asked, could I could I you know help them out, putting a bit of shape on research they were doing about their experiences in maternity hospitals and really, you know, very much the same thing that's happening in the UK, that's happening in other parts of the global north came up where, you know, people are just being, you know, not listened to, ignored, dismissed. So that idea that racism doesn't look like that really obvious you know, your, your, you know, slurs, which was also happening, by the way, which also uh, women were experiencing, but that just how dangerous structural racism is and how we know from research that it, it affects maternity outcomes. If you are black or brown woman, you're more likely to die. And Ireland's statistics are really, really shocking in that area. So I did some research to try and gather evidence on that. And we did gather the evidence, but unfortunately, what we found was that the politicians didn't really care. And a lot of people didn't really care. So we did do a, uh, we met with politicians, we presented the research, there was a couple of write-ups in the paper. But, you know, you would think that a rational mind would go, oh my God, this is an absolute crisis, we need to fix this. But that's not the experience, unfortunately. But I guess the more positive work then is just to always remember and to hold up Ireland as an example of how, if, like I said earlier, we, we got abortion introduced on demand in Ireland up to 12 weeks. It's still very problematic. But the Irish repeal movement is an example of a victory and something that, you know, we would be saying to activists in the United States, for example, look at Ireland, it can be done. It, it's how abortion was introduced in the 70s in the US in the first place was because of feminists on the street. But the Irish example is a more recent case where, as I said earlier, we literally forced the issue and forced the hand of government, not without women dying, not without terrible tragedy, not without a lot of people having to share very personal stories at great personal cost to themselves. But it can be done. We can change things with collective action and looking to communities and not to politicians. I think I could build on that with the work that uh, we're doing with Good Troubles St. Augustine. There has been in, in the U.S. context a lot of billions of dollars, federal dollars, that are being funneled into communities uh, during COVID and post-COVID. And we, as a group, working um, with the leadership in the Black community, a, a, a community West Augustine, Really, we decided that at or with the um, the leadership of the black community that what we really wanted to work on was getting expanding a health clinic that was in West Augustine because you can't have any kind of justice and reproductive anything if you don't have access to services. And it's been about a two year campaign of continually getting alliances of smaller. Uh, progressive groups to put pressure on the board of commissioners through phone calls, emails, going to board meetings, or, or on the ground of forcing the county commission to take a certain, and, and I think we ended up getting about 9 million of 47 million that came into the community to expand a clinic that was in a community of color um, to expand services, to expand access, so that it's right in this community with the leadership in the community of what services they want. So it's much more micro level, say, than the work, Camilla, that you're doing on the macro level. But it's like, okay, these are where the resources are. 
and as a local group working in a multiracial uh, alliance, um, we collectively put pressure on the politicians who control the purse strings to get these dollars into the community. Thank you so much. And I think that it's so valuable to hear these different examples at, at so many different levels. And, um, and it's a really important, some of the things you have addressed in terms of is representation really enough? No, it's not. And <laughs> different conceptualization, understanding of feminism and even feminism with an S and intersectionality. And in a way, I think it, this also kind of takes me to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is more also on, on the framing of reproductive justice as well, like the different understandings and the mainstreaming of reproductive justice and even the role of reproductive justice within academia. We, as you also spoke about in your definition and conceptualization that it really came from collective movement and activism and is used in many different academic settings. So I'm just interested in hearing from you all um, what you think this mainstreaming of, of reproductive justice and also use in academia, what does that mean for reproductive justice as a framework and how we use it? Edem, um, I don't know if you wanna start with yeah, this. Yeah, um, <laughs> since we had that conversation, yeah. Um, like, I think, when things you know when like you know definitions frameworks theories and stuff and i think intersectionality is a really good example right it's a good example i'll come to reproductive justice in that it was a it was a term that was coined by kimberly crenshaw for a particular piece of research which was talking about legality was talking about criminal justice and the law and it just sort of you know manifested and now it's in it's in the public lexicon right it's, it's it's part of you know the way that we explain things and I think it's really useful and helpful um but I think it's also important to interrogate so one of the good things that happens with things coming becoming popular is that more people become aware of it I think sadly the other thing that happens is that it loses what it actually is because people kind of like contort it to fit whatever they is so I'd, I'd say kind of the public consciousness around reproductive justice it's always like kind of really within like the abortion quote unquote rights framework. I think that's how a lot of people understand it. But you know, me and Annabelle have a, have a joke about we we say, well, what isn't reproductive justice? Like housing is a reproductive justice issue. Health is a reproductive justice. Like so many things. So for us, what is really important is that it's good that it's become more popular and people know. But I think that the harder work is trying to get people to connect these dots and trying to get them to understand that actually really and truly, um, like um, Kamala said earlier, we're talking about the total destruction of capitalism. That's how we achieve reproductive justice. We're talking about a reimagining, a rebuilding of a world that like works for all of us, not just some of us. And what that really means in reality, that means a complete divestment from, you know, the military industrial complex, all of those, the complete, you know, divestment of international wars, you know, all those funds, all those money divested into communities, into education, into housing, into healthcare, into preventative healthcare, into an opportunity where people don't, you know, have to, it's not all about going to university, getting a degree and having a job. Like, what do people want to do? What would they like to create? Is the funding of the arts, is the funding of like, you know, social spaces. I think that that's ultimately what we want. And I think that those of us who work in reproductive justice know what it is. I think we have to keep reiterating now that it's in kind of the public domain, what it truly means. And I think that we should, um, it's a good thing. But I think we should also be aware of what the pitfalls can be and, be and be doing work to mitigate against that. And I think we also need to, um, I said this to Elise, in our conversation, we need to wrestle reproductive justice just back from the academy. I think that's really important. <laughs> I think a lot of, you know, it's good. I, I don't think the research is a bad thing. I'm not an academic, so I think I'm, I'm able to say some of these things. I think the research is good, but I've seen in the last couple of years, a lot of resources and time and energy has gone into academic conferences and research and papers and stuff. And it's like, but what are we actually doing? Like, do you know what I mean? What are we doing? We need to have a bigger conversation about that. And I think, you know, I think people who are doing this research stuff mean very well, but I think it's important for them to also realize that they're producing all of this stuff for academic institutions. And, you know, there's a question about, 
intellectual property and who will go on to own those pieces of research and those pieces of information and what are we doing to, you know, to, to mitigate against that. If I could build on that, there are some fascinating things happening, uh, have been happening for the last mm, four or five years in the U.S. out of, um, oh, Black Mamas Matter Alliance and also the Black uh, Maternal Health Caucus in the U.S. Congress. And there's a series of about 13 bills called the Momnibus Act. And so there's a, a lot more uh, money and focus going into maternal health care uh, for uh, Black women and communities of color. And one of the things they've done around research is that the money that's going into research has to be done nested, it, it's community-based research, and it has to be done in partnership with community groups that are already working in um, communities of color. And so it's a powerful, I, I think, connecting of these of the, the researchers with community organizations that are already on the ground working so that the research doesn't end up, as Eden was saying, of just you know floating around in academia, that it's based on impacting policy and practices. And so it's very clear that it's knowledge creation with and for the communities who they already have knowledge, but then to contribute um, knowledge tools to how are we going to then improve access? How are we going to improve services? How are we going to, uh, and it's everything from, anyway, I'll stop there, but um, it just yeah. wanted to address that issue of, of linking sort of academia. And you have, I think, a lot of activist scholars or scholar practitioners or people who are really asking in academia, who's the knowledge for, who benefits? How do we create knowledge in ways with and for people who can benefit from that? Thank you so sometimes, much. sometimes I have to um, look behind me because uh, sometimes I feel that the people that I really admire, obviously I work in the university, the people that I really admire who have also work in universities, lots of them have been sacked or have left. So I probably need to... <laughs> To look behind me um, because I completely agree with what people are saying. I mean, I think there are two very practical things I think we can do. Uh, I, first of all, I think all of us can call out NGOs and other groups when they describe themselves as intersectional and then behave in a completely different way. So an example would be, I remember having, a, you know, being involved in a bit of conflict within a, um, a well-known social movement in Ireland because I felt that we should have been on a cost of living demonstration with our banner instead of having a separate demonstration about abortion, bring the abortion banner into the cost of living demonstration because these things are connected. So I think we need to call out groups. Oh, we're intersectional, but by the way, we're, you know, voting for this neoliberal government and we're, you know, that sort of thing. But the other thing I think very practically is I think people like me who work in universities have a choice. We have a choice how we spend our time. We have a choice whether or not we go for the big grants that are going to get us the promotions or whether or not we spend that time doing research with communities where maybe there isn't the chance of promotion or there isn't the big grant. Uh, so it's almost who do I want to serve? Do I want to serve the neoliberal university or do I want to serve the community, the, the kind of social justice orientation? I can write beautiful books and get loads of citations, but who's going to read them? Lots of them are behind paywalls and it just becomes a game. Or I can, you know, piss people off within my own institution and uh, go and go be on, be on a, on a, on a, you know, march. That was a, um, World Refugee Day yesterday, you know, quite a big march in, in Dublin. You know, that's the place that academics need to be, I would argue, rather than locked in, um, offices writing papers. Certainly academics that have an interest in social justice. Thank and you. it also raises the issue of, you know, like universities have resources and who are gonna have those resources? And, and feminist Jill Morawski said that, you know, one of the main things feminist scientists could do was change the place which in, within which science is created. And I think for those of us who have been in academia at one time of our life or another or have alliances with them, 
when I started out early in academia, I was like, these are the people who have the Gestetner machines and the fax machines. Like, I want to have those resources. I want to have paid vacation. I want to have health care. I want to have these things. And yet I want to then change as I could from the inside the university. Why let them have all these resources that go unchallenged? So it's that dance, I think, of changing the places within which we work and trying to then ally with places that have resources because why let them have all that money uncontested? Yeah. Thank you. Eden, did you want to? Uh, can I? Yeah, I absolutely agree. So, yeah, yeah. One of, one of the things I did, because like I said, I'm not an academic. I just have an undergrad from a very working class university in London, London Metropolitan University. Used to be a polytechnic as part of what we call the post 92, you know, set of universities in this country. And one of the things I did was at universities that like, you know, I used to do like Pan-African social movement organizing. I would book all our meetings at the university. I use a lot of my university's resources, which includes space. So that's another thing that people don't realize is that community organizations and stuff could do with space, could do with like other resources and actually part of, you know, if, if you say you're for social justice, you know, doing work around, but part of that is also diverting a lot of the university's resources to help community organizations in whatever capacity you can and you know we at, at RJI and personally me I've done a lot of things work with like you know connecting with trade union movements for example so we we need a space for a meet in London recently and they gave us a free space you know like all of those things is how we build and help each other and not every not everything is in is in monetary terms and monetary value but a lot of things can go a really long way to help you know, community organization, grassroots organization to move things forward. Um, so that's that's just what I wanted to add. Thank you, so Edom. Um, I think we should uh, take a few questions. There has been a question in the chat box from Cathy uh, saying, uh, thank you for the definition of reproductive justice, such amazing work you're all doing. I'm so inspired. Uh, I'm just wondering your thoughts on its link to my topic of pregnancy loss and childless, not by choice people. I'm wondering if in this sense, it could exclude as fertility is of course, not always a choice. Thank you. Um, Camilla, I don't know if you wanna take this question. Yeah, I'm happy to add other people may have may yeah. have comments as well, but I just, when I saw, uh, thanks Cathy and solidarity to you. Um, just a couple of things that your question kind of Spurred in my own head, I mean, I think it's a really important point and to remember that that the right to have children is very much part of the reproductive justice framework and that that should include things like who has access to IVF, because I know in Ireland it's a very expensive treatment, it's individualised. And I think that needs to be absolutely changed and fought for. And I know there has been some work done in Ireland by some activists to try and raise that issue. You basically you need to have financial resources to access and you need to have the sort of job that you can take time off. You need to have a network around you that can support you. So it really is for the middle-class uh, IVF, certainly in, in Ireland. But even to bring it to that wider structural thing again as well, and back to, to you know, Edom's point about reimagining a whole other world. You know, we also have a situation where, you know, researchers compete against each other in really private kind of hand over the homework ways rather than sharing resources and sharing the information that we might manage to make the sort of scientific breakthroughs that can help people in these situations instead of, again, this capitalist competition, which is always in the pursuit of profit. So I know that's just zoning in on, on one aspect of what you're talking about, but I know certainly IVF for me and access to IVF is very much part of, of a reproductive justice framework. Absolutely. Anybody that wants to have children should have access to all the things they need in order to make that happen. Absolutely. Thank you. Then we have a lot of questions. So unless you want to add a little bit more to that, I'm just going to move on because they're great. Um, there's one here from Elizabeth Anyango who says, Ida mentioned how colonization dismantled community knowledge. My question is, how can we incorporate indigenous knowledge and perspectives into the fight for reproductive health? Um, so, yes. 
So we use this quote in our um, presentation and it's by um, T.R. Smith, um, Decolonize the Methodologies. They're, uh, um, I think they're Australian. Um, they wrote this book and they talk about, you know, to decolonize is to acknowledge the often harmful role that colonization has played in distorting knowledge and restructuring our society. And we ask how may we dismantle epistemologies derived through colonialism and instead center the experiences of indigenous populations. So like, I think it kind of goes back to the criticism I was making earlier about academics and academia and even we can go even further and talk about like anthropology anthropology is like a colonial humanity science it's like if the southern like the studying of other people assumed as other from you know whoever is being studied so I think it's it's encouraging ways in which actual communities because there are people in communities who don't have like formal university training that would like to do research that have seen knowledge and things part of them that would like to like icarf them institute them you know kind of collate them in a way that everybody can see and it can be shared and can be access and I, I guess what I would say to that is that you know people in academia who have the resources also about money right people need to be paid for this particular work is, is that to, to you know divert those resources to support people it's okay to you know build something up and set it up and be like okay well we've done all the structural things that you um um that's possible to make you be the center be the leader of kind of archiving kind of you know writing down kind of you know um this knowledge that we can then disseminate and, and, and share with other people so that that's what I would say is is that um you know I I don't know again I don't know the technicalities of academia but I think there needs to be more funding and scholarships that are just about providing communities money to kind of like write down record and be able to disseminate some of this community like knowledge and for us one of the ways that we do that is that you know we try lots of our projects lots of our like outputs and things that we're doing in the community centering the community so you know we get people involved from the designing from the producing, from to the evaluation, and even how we evaluate is really important to us. When we do evaluations, we make sure that we create a booklet, you know, we get illustrators to illustrate things, you know, we, we do things in a way that is accessible. It's not a boring, you know, <laughs> white background, black font, you know, 12 Montessara and like, here's the report. No, we get we get it designed. We make it into PDFs. We we make it into social media things that we can share online that's easy, easily accessible for people. And I think that, that that's one of the ways in which we can do that bit of work. And I think, Edom, all the things that you're describing is the beauty of community-based research or participatory action research, where you start with groups in a community right from the get-go. Um, on even what issues they want to look at. How do they define problems? Um, what, are, how did, what are their strengths? What strengths do they bring to it? And there are so many um, participatory and experiential methodologies that can be used with communities. There's work being done with youth participatory action research of working with teenagers in, in schools around these issues. The challenge always is that all the, to, to listen to, with people and learn with them. It takes time across time, which takes, I mean, it, it takes time. It's not fast knowledge and it's not fast research, which then of course has implications back to funding and back to how do people work and how are things funded on two or three year projects when, you know, um, there's some magnificent work being done um, by a group of black feminists in Cincinnati community-based participatory research on reproductive justice. And, and I think you can put that in the chat. I've, I shared the article from Carlette Norwood, Tembi Carr. Um, the researchers themselves who were activist scholars and activists in the community, they spent a year before they ever went to the community on what I think in feminist research we'd call reflexivity, that they looked at themselves as a group, how do we want to work? How do we want to work with each other? How do we want to work with the community? Well, that takes time across time to do that. And it takes a commitment to be in a place and space for a long period of time to kind of dig where you stand. And I think that's you know a challenging thing for, say, our listeners, 
but you know you look at what's the place you're in and the space you're in and how can you ally and work with people there because this kind of work takes time across time i think the time the time thing that you're saying patricia is really important because I think for us, where we are as an organization right now, we got, I, I, I don't want to use the word lucky. I'm trying to rethink. I don't think it's luck. I think it's our hard work and determination that has got us this far. But we um, recently had a funder, the Black Feminist Fund. And, you know, they've, they've, they're funding us for the next eight years. And the relief, like, and sigh like we had where we had that. Like, we, I, I cried. There was, there were lots of tears. Because for the first time, somebody with money because prior to that all the projects we've done had a deliverable had an outcome we spent as much as time reporting to funders as we did doing our work there was no room to breathe as soon as one project was done it's like we don't have any more money we need to find money to do another project but here is a funder that comes in and say we believe in what you're doing so we're going to give you money for this amount of time and even for that we're having to readjust because we've been so used to the mode of go 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 we're having to be like oh wait a minute we don't actually need to do this in two months we can take longer to do this and it's actually important for us to take longer to do this because then we can get other people involved so that things aren't being informed by a few people that we can get other perspectives involved because it's easy to have a blind spot there are some issues there's some things that you know i didn't know everything none of us do so it's important to get as many as people involved especially when you're doing stuff for communities so that you're covering as much as possible um so i just wanted to add on to that Thank you so much. I'm just going to move on to a few more questions and comments because there's so many. Um, maybe we'll take two. There's a question that says, like, if, is it really reproductive justice if it's located within the university? So you can think a little bit about that, um, coming back to our, from our conversation before. And then Peter has a comment saying, it would be good to get your thoughts on um there appears to be a real epistemological tension in particular regarding that reproductive justice deals with so many issues that comes under the heading of health which tend to value highly technical highly neoliberal outcome oriented knowledge forms so particularly cutting edge and expensive technologies like ivf is there a role for knowledge um, producers working within reproductive justice frameworks to engage critically with these technical knowledge forms. Yeah, that's a very long comment. Um, no, and I, I mean, I might just pick up on one of it because I think I missed it even in the comment earlier. I mean, if you read any of the sort of literature about a reproductive justice framework, you know, one of the kind of baselines for the right to have children is that women are, well, women and pregnant people or people who want to be pregnant. Have a, have a healthy life, have, you know, good food, proper food to eat, decent air to breathe, that they're not stressed out. I mean, these are the things that and I'm not trying to minimize in any way the challenges where people struggle to become pregnant, but these are also part of that framework. So I think that comment is absolutely correct. We jump to the to the to the scientific, perhaps because of its profit making potential. Uh, without wanting to shut the door on on the scientific either could i make a really quick point about some of the discussion between Edom and patricia there as well because I, I think it's really important because research is being mentioned quite a lot you know and i mean you could argue that research is something that has also been co-opted and taken by the universities and claimed as something that it often isn't i mean i started out as a i used to be a nurse many years ago but after that i was a community worker and we used to do needs analysis all the time that's research knocking on people's doors saying what do you need what's going on you know and um, that's research and in many respects the way that research has been has been almost taken into the university from the community like it's owned by the university one thing the university has been very good is putting barriers in place. So I tend to get um, approached by like that migrant women's group that I spoke about earlier, like other groups, because I kind of people know me from you know outside of the university and because I have a reputation and I pride myself on being a very ethical researcher. It's really very important to me. But one of the biggest challenges I find is getting my work through ethics committees because they are in many ways structures that are created to, um, I've, my experience is often to disempower 
participatory action research to disempower communities because there's this notion of certain rules and guidelines that have to be followed and it's in some way not ethical if you're doing it that way particularly there can be issues involving peer researchers so I know a colleague of mine had a lot of difficulty getting cash to pay sex workers who were working as peer researchers and ended up losing some of the peer researchers and it was because the university just couldn't wrap its head around the fact that people need to be paid in cash you know I have had real problems of getting um, work with uh, Indigenous traveller women in Ireland approved uh, because of an expectation of these really lengthy written information and consent forms which are the language of the university and not the language of the community. So this is a little bit of a bugbear of mine, I don't want to go on about it too much, but I think research is not owned by the by the academy and communities need to reclaim it and be confident in what they're doing that they know as much if not more as as the institutions do and whether or not reproductive justice exists in the in the university i mean there's people like me who work in universities as well there's people like patricia who's worked in universities where we do do what we can to give back the resources uh, so i think the idea that the university is just one homogenous thing it's that we need to maybe just think a little bit more nuanced about that thank you so much um, I, I think we can just manage one last question, um, which actually ties a little bit to our last episode that was on sexuality education. So Catalina asks about, do you think it is possible to build an alternative sexuality education from a reproductive justice approach? Or is there another way to perpetuate the same discourses around sexual reproductive uh, rights and health? Do you, do you want to start, Patricia? <laughs> well, I'm thinking that, um, I mean, in general, there's always a way to create alternatives. That's what this is all about. And I'm not 100% sure what the, um, I, I can't see in the chat room what's being asked, but I think if you can conceptualize an alternative, you can begin in, in concrete ways to figure out how to how to make that happen. So I think there's always places and ways for alternatives. That's what reproductive justice comes out of. That's what participatory action research comes out, out of. That's what, you know, Edom's very first question of or comment about creating an alternative world for everyone so that everyone benefits. Everyone has a healthy, productive, happy, just life. Um, so I would encourage anyone who is conceptualizing alternatives to work with other people to, to figure out in small ways how to begin concretizing that, how to begin making it become a reality. You, you start in small ways. Um, we also only have a few minutes left. So before I leave, I uh, we really like to end on a, on a note of big thinking. I'm curious to hear what are your commitments of, of, of your future work in the reproductive justice space? What do you see as your future commitments? Uh, I'm looking forward um, to doing, you know, um, uh, it's a really big piece of work, to be honest, around, um, <laughs> you know, how do we actualize reproductive justice for communities? So what are the demands, right? Like, what do we want? And people, you know, just about housing, like access to healthcare when we want it. You know, there's a really long waiting list in the national health services to get anything provision, provision of sexual reproductive health services in parts of the country is really poor. It's a post-conductory where you live depends on your access to stuff. I recently moved to Birmingham and it was so shocking to me. There's actually like one clinic that you can go to to get full STI testing and you expect it to be there at 9 a.m. when it opens, even though it's open from nine to six. And if you're like me, you get there at four because that's when you finish work. All the appointments are gone. And the, the person literally said to me, oh, you have to come at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And I was like, I have to work. I go up and come and sit there at 9 a.m. in the morning. That's shocking, you know, that that's the state of things. So, um, 
think about the future and work I, I really want to do stuff around demands that we can concretely say this is what people want these are the things that we need to do to begin to actualize reproductive justice in people's lives that's that's yeah Camilla what's your big thinking yeah I mean two comments are staying with me um uh, Peter in the chat talked about the relational nature of the work and how it's slow and takes time and it's about, you know, getting to know people, building trust. Um, there's actually a movement, I think, uh, about slow working. I don't know if people have come across this, but again, it's something that has to be done collectively. We collectively say we're not, we're not going to play this juggernaut game anymore and let certain things fall off our desk and do that slow relational work. So I think there's hope for, for me in that. But also I think I do and would encourage everybody to take hope from the victories. I mean, Eden just mentioned one there now. I mean, the Irish story is a story of significant victory and we can win if we work together. So, I mean, people talk about hope all of the time. But it's not about, I mean, we can all look out the window and say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I mean, that's not what hope means. It means creating the conditions for hope. Paolo Freire said, if hope does not exist, we must labor to create the conditions. And that is where I see uh, the future. I think there we need to stay positive and hopeful and collectively work for a better world. Because this rise of the far right is very horrible and scary and worrying and I don't think I can come off this call without talking about how difficult it is to see all of the focus on a terrible tragedy that happened with this titanic um underground um, right. um module so five people may have lost their lives which is very sad but how can we not look at how every woman and child on a migrant ship off the coast of Greece died last week. Where is the rescue for those people? Why is, you know, who that is the perfect example of whose lives matter and whose lives don't matter. So I think for the future, this, you know, we need to work together. We need to say that the rise in the right will also bring with it a rise in solidarity, in community, and we need to work hard to create conditions to, to build an alternative world. I'm not sure if any of that made sense, but hopefully it did. It did. It did. It Good. absolutely did. It did. <laughs> and you're right about the, you just said about the ship, this Titanic thing. It's really shocking how the media and everyone, and, and it's, it's really sad if those five people have not found that they lost their lives. But you're absolutely right. Almost a hundred people drowned off the coast, and immediately, you know, you had the EU coming out saying it wasn't anybody's fault; it's just a tragedy. There's been no investigation. You have lots of media reporting that people on the boat have said that something happened. It didn't just, you know, the coast guard got involved, and then things turned really bad. But immediately, it was like, no, nobody did anything wrong. It's completely fine, and that's the difference in whose life is important and whose life isn't. Right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely mm -hmm. right. Thank you so much. We are reaching our time, but I, we can do another minute also just to bring in Patricia. Um, what is your big thinking? Well, I, it's funny because I think I'm there's big thinking, but for me, big thinking gets actualized in small localized places. And I would want to encourage listeners when the, the meta issues right now are overwhelming and they can stultify you. They can make you feel like you can make no difference, so why try? And I would only encourage workers, and I encourage my, that's part of why I'm working with this very small local group, is like, dig where you stand. I mean, find a place, allies, people who think like you. Three people can begin to be critical mass, and then you reach out and you find other people working on issues that are of importance to you. You can't do it all. I mean, with this reproductive justice umbrella, there are so many pieces of it. And certainly you want to understand the large connections, the, the global, the meta issues. Yet your work is very in a localized place with other people. And I, I just want to encourage people to keep doing that work, to not feel like, oh, I can't do it all. I'm not changing the world. I'm not doing the big thing. I'm not... You know, therefore, it's not important. It, it is important. It is important. 
Thank you so much, Patricia. And I don't really want to stop this conversation because it's so inspiring. Um, I could keep going, but um, we have reached our time. So I'm going to say thank you so much to all three of you, to Edom, Patricia and Camilla. It's been such a pleasure having you here, listening to you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Elise. Thank you for having us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Take thank care. you, Elizabeth. Thank you. It almost looks like we have ah. <laughs> 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 in the background. So, yeah. <laughs>